Well, let me open this up in a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity week in and week out to open up your word and to, uh, and to hear it preached each and every week. God, we pray for, um, we pray for your blessing this morning. We pray that, uh, that you would strengthen me as I, as I open up your word and that it would be your words that we hear and not my own. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, this week is the, is the 4th of July, and as Americans, as we think about the 4th of July, we often, we, we often go back and we think about those great events in American history, or we think about the opportunity to go visit some of those places that, uh, where those key events have happened in American history. Uh, maybe you've stood on the, the battlefields at Gettysburg, like I've had the opportunity to do, or to go to the beaches of Normandy, which I haven't had the opportunity to do. But you get a, great, a much greater sense of the history that happened there when you go back to that place. And when we think about July 4th, if you were to go back to what was the Pennsylvania State House, now known as Independence Hall in Philadelphia, we would be reminded of the significance of what happened there with our founding fathers. But much more important than the history of, of our own country is this morning, I want to take us back to two significant places in the history of Old Testament Israel, to Mount Carmel and to Mount Sinai, two places where we see God's power on display, and in particular with Mount Sinai, a place where God has laid out his mission for his people. I've titled our message this morning, God's Character on Display Through the Ministry of Elijah. Now my daughter said, Dad, that is a very unoriginal title. But I think it, it captures everything I want to accomplish here. We want to see God's character and we're gonna see it on display through the ministry of Elijah. So while you're opening your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, just a little bit of background here. We don't often get to spend much time on a Sunday morning going back and looking at Old Testament uh, history. But when we go back and we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the history, it's important for us to do because when we do so, we see God's character, we see what he has done, and we have an idea to know how he will act in the future and what he will do. 45% of our Bibles are given to narrative. So there's a significant portion, almost half, that is given to history and to narrative. A couple weeks ago, we had the opportunity as Nathan Lee preached from the book of Judges, and we looked at Othniel. And so what I want to do is skip forward a little bit now and move into the time of, of the monarchy, the times of the kings. So to give you a sense as to where Israel is, after coming out of the land through the Exodus, they, they conquered the land in the book of Joshua, and then Nathan took us into Judges, where there's this, this downward spiral that happens in the nation as they've given more and more to the worship of Canaanite gods and abandoned the worship of the one true God. And then in First and Second Samuel, we see the establishment of a king, first under Saul, but then the promised king of David, who's a picture of Christ to come, and then the reign of his son Solomon. But just when it looks like Israel is at its, at its height, that Israel looks to be this, this, this city on a hill, this beacon, that then there's a division in the kingdom. And after Solomon, his son Rehoboam takes over. But his son Rehoboam didn't follow in the ways of David 
And so the two southern kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin break off and become Judah. And the 10 northern tribes break off under Jeroboam and form their own kingdom. So those northern tribes, they're now geographically separated from Jerusalem. And as a result, their worship is no longer in Jerusalem. And for political reasons, they don't want the people of the northern kingdom to go back to Jerusalem to worship. So they establish their own form, their own form of worship in the northern kingdom, which is this syncretistic religion of some forms of, of the worship of Yahweh and then also incorporating uh, idolatry in the worship of Can- in the Canaanite religion. So as we come into 1 Kings now, Ahab is going to be the king. And Ahab is the eighth king of the, northern, of the northern tribes. We read in 1 Kings 16, verse 28 and 30, about Ahab becoming the king. And it says in verse 28, And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. He's the worst king so far that the northern kingdom of Israel has had. Ahab would have become king in 874 B.C., to place this on a timeline to understand where this is in Israel's history, uh, the division of Israel and Judah occurred in 931 BC. So this is 57 years after that division. According to Old Testament historian Eugene Merrill, Ahab's nation had relative prosperity. And as our text describes, he, however, he was more evil than all the kings that had come before him. His reign did not lack significance. He was king for 22 years. If you were to uh, put that on a relative timeline for us to understand, uh, compare it with U.S. history, Ahab was king in the same time frame that that George W. Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden have been president. So that's a significant period of time that, uh, that Ahab was the king. But that's not all. We also see the evil influence his wife had on him. If you're still in 1 Kings 16, verse 31, it says, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is idolatry, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Baal is known as the storm god. Worshippers believed he was responsible for agricultural success. And in a nation such as Israel, as for any nation, agricultural success is necessary for the success and prosperity of a nation. In Canaanite mythology, without getting too graphic, Baal and the goddess Asherah, who's also a fertility god, had relations, and Canaanite culture believed the fertile ground was a result of that relationship. As a result of such belief, you can certainly understand the debauchery that was practiced in this cultic worship now in the northern kingdom. The symbol of the Asherah was the evergreen tree, which eventually would be displayed in an idolatrous way through, through a wooden pole or ashram, as we see referred to throughout scripture. 
Baal worship wasn't new in, in the northern kingdom. It had been in the nation of Israel since about 1340 when it was introduced. So it's not a brand new religion, but now it's been elevated to where it is the state religion instituted by Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel's father, in fact, with the name Ethbel, means Baal is alive. And so you can see just the centrality of Baal worship in Jezebel and how that influenced Ahab and now the, the cultic worship that is occurring. In chapter 17, the Lord brings a prophet into the scene named Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah comes in, and his name literally means the Lord is God. Tishbe is a town on the east side of the Jordan River, but now he's going to be a prophet in, in the northern kingdom. And he shows up in chapter 17, and he declares that there will be a drought. And he says that this drought is a direct judgment of God on Ahab, Jezebel, and the northern kingdom for rejecting him. Which leads us to our text this morning in chapters 18 and 19 in a, about Elijah. And I hope if you saw the Utah video, I hope each of you respond better than the kids did to Nate in asking about Elijah. So, if you were in Sunday school as a kid, you're probably familiar with the events of this story of Elijah, the prophets of Baal, on Mount Carmel. This narrative is important, however, because it shows us the character of God and it provides us instruction on how we should live as believers today in a society that's not at all unlike what was going on in 857 BC. So in these two chapters, I wanna highlight three aspects of God's character that are on display through the ministry of Elijah. And first is the holiness of God. We read in 18.1, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab is getting to desperate levels. People are starving. The military is getting weak because the horses don't have grass to eat. And so food sources are drying up and that opens up the northern kingdom to potential invasion. In fact, that's gonna happen later in Ahab's reign. Because of this, we read in verse three, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. But briefly, just look at, at the character of Obadiah and a man who's identified as someone who feared the Lord greatly, yet he's obviously someone who has a position of authority in Ahab's government. And when we read about, when we read about Obadiah, you know, our minds go back to like, those people who had such courage during World War II that would hide Jews so they wouldn't be sent off to extermination camps. This is what Obadiah is doing in protecting, in protecting people, and he does it out of the fear of the Lord. He does it because he knows who God is. He loves the Lord and he loves God's people and he acts, though at great personal risk. Obviously, if he would have been caught, this would have resulted in his death. But we still see that Obadiah faithfully accomplishes the work that he's been called to 
while still worshiping the Lord and still faithfully protecting God's people. But continuing on in verse seven, and as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered him, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Ahab gets this message from Elijah to go and tell Ahab, hey, I found Elijah. He's going to come and talk to you. But Obadiah's fear is that the Lord is going to supernaturally move Elijah somewhere else, and he's going to be you know, caught sitting there holding the bag and be executed for not bringing Elijah, who has been who's been suspect number one on, Ahab, on Ahab's most wanted list. Verse 15, and Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Elijah was called the troubler or destroyer of Israel. What Ahab should have done is he should have taken responsibility for the drought, the issue, the problems that were happening in the northern kingdom. He should have recognized that he was at fault. It was because of his open rebellion, his rejection of the Lord, that there had been three years of drought, and now the nation was in a predicament. It was his fault, but in, there's no one to blame but him and Jezebel, but instead, he wants to turn, and he wants to put that on Elijah and call him the troubler of Israel. He wants to put the blame somewhere else. We, too, will be called troublers. We will be called the troublers of the United States. We will be called the troublers of our communities. We'll be called the troubler of society as we stand on the truth of God's word as Elijah did. This is seen throughout scripture and it's seen throughout history. John the Baptist was accused of being an accuser as he went and confronted Herod on his great sin he was called a troubler. Haven't we seen this on display throughout the book of Acts as our pastor has preached through the, through the missionary journeys of Paul and how Paul would go into a city such as Ephesus or he would go or as he returned to the temple in Jerusalem and when he would, when he would go in, a riot would, ha would happen or people would be stirred up and Paul would be accused of being the troubler when in actuality, it was the people who were hearing him preach who were causing the riots, who were stirring up the trouble, but they turned and they, and they placed the blame on the man of God who was preaching 
This is evident throughout church history when the early church was, was called, they were called atheists by the Romans because they were preaching a God who didn't, who didn't exist in the Roman pantheon of gods. And in the New Testament, Peter attests to this. Turn and look at uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice the irony here in what Peter says. We will be called evildoers by society even though our actions are a blessing to those in that society. Society flourishes when there's obedience to God's word. But when we as believers live according to God's word, it is an affront to those who hate the truth of God's word. We don't see this today when we're called evildoers for not being loving. When we're told that we are extremists because we do not celebrate Pride Month and when we refuse to call normal what is clearly contrary to God's created order. But at the same time, the society that hates us, they're also going to see our good deeds. And that's the other side of the irony of what, what we read in 1 Peter 2. They will see our good deeds. They will see us living in obedience to God's word, not perfectly, but they see it as a consistent manner. And because of that, it will be a testimony to those that know us and to those that see us. Peter describes this even further. Uh, if you flip over a page to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, where we're promised that as believers, we will be maligned for not participating in the same sins as the world around us. 1 Peter 4.3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. This verse describes the world we live in, does it not? Jesus promises that this will be the reaction of the world to us. He told his disciples in, in John 15, 18 and following, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. When we talk about holiness, we talk about being separate from sin. As we preach holiness, as we live holy lives and call on others to believe in a holy God, we'll be hated. But take courage. It's not us they hate. It's our Savior. It's our God who calls on everyone to put away their sin and to follow him. If we faithfully follow Christ, we will face the same accusation that the prophet Elijah heard from Ahab and we will be called troublers. 
we will be blamed for the ills of society. But continuing with the story of, uh, that Elijah tells Ahab in verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. The numbers are stacked against Elijah here. Ahab follows through with Elijah. He goes and he gets the 450 prophets of Baal. He gets the 400 prophets of Asherah. He brings them to Mount Carmel, which is up in the northwestern portion of Israel, near the coast. Not only do those 850 prophets show up, but a bunch of people show up as well because it's clear something significant is gonna go down. Notice Elijah's statement here though. His question to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? See, what happened is the people of Israel, they grew up hearing the law, or at least a part of the law. They were aware of the books of Moses. They were aware of their history, and they're choosing to ignore it. They were aware of their kingdom, and they were familiar with who God is. However, they've now given themselves to worshiping Baal and mixing pagan religion with God's law. Limping between two opinions was not something that was done by just the ancient Israelites, however. It's also being done today. Maybe you're growing up in the church and this describes you each Sunday morning. You're here every week. You hear the word of God. You know what the word of God says. You know it is true, but yet you refuse to obey it. You refuse to believe it. You refuse to place your faith in Jesus Christ, and as you're limping between two opinions of knowing the truth on one hand, but then loving your sin on the other. See, as we look at this history of ancient Israel, and we hear about Elijah telling the people they're limping between two opinions, we're reminded today that many of us this morning are limping between two different opinions. In this case, it's idolatry. And idolatry is worshiping something or someone more than God. I don't know what that is this morning, but what is it that we are worshiping more than we are worshiping God? Moving on to verse 22, as Elijah is setting the stage to display God's holiness. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. When we talk about the holiness of God, we are not just referring to him being separate from sin, though that's certainly true, what we are saying is, as R.C. Sproul says in his book, The Holiness of God, when he describes God's holiness as his supreme and absolute greatness, he is far above any comparison. He demands our worship. And that's what Elijah is going to do here. Elijah's proposing, and in fact, he's demanding a contest. 
in, the, in this chapter. He wants to prove the holiness and the transcendence of God compared to this false god of Baal. Remember that Baal's the, the fertility god. Israel's in the middle of three years of drought. God has already made a mockery of Baal, the fertility god, by giving three years of drought. But now he's going to take it to a completely different level. Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. So notice that while there's great equivocation by the people between God and Baal, not really picking a side, limping between two opinions, Elijah doesn't establish any sort of moral equivalence between Baal worship and the worship of the one true God. He tells them, you worship your God, and I will, call upon, I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God. He establishes there's only one true God. As we have conversations with people, as we evangelize, it's not, well, that's good for you and this is good for me. There is one true God who is holy, who demands our worship. And Elijah lays out that there is one true God, and the people answered it as well spoken. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Elijah wants to make sure that he's not accused of stacking the deck in his favor. He lets them choose the bull first, he lets them prepare it, and he lets them go first. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. It's amazing spiritual blindness by the people and by the prophets. Obviously, their God's not going to respond because their God's a false God. But for hours, they go on cutting themselves. The easiest response would be to repent, to recognize we are following a false god. But they don't do that. Instead, they continue to hope that their god will answer them. You know, repentance is at the same time both the easiest and the most difficult act to do. In a rational sense, we know the things that we do are sinful, but at the same time, we love our sin, and we desperately hold on to it, even when we know it doesn't make any sense. Sin makes us stupid, as we've heard many times. Verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. What Elijah is doing is he is mocking their God, by reducing him to mere human actions. Instead of the God of Israel, the one true God who's transcendent, who's far above all gods, far above all creation, Elijah's reducing Baal to mere human descriptions of musing, relieving himself, needing to be awakened, things which do not, do not show him in a high view. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, the 
time of the sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal's prophets were getting desperate. They're spiritually blind to their condition. They refuse to repent, and their calls fall on deaf ears. But then see what Elijah does, and see what our holy God does. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Elijah knows Israel's history. Elijah knows God's promise to Israel. God's promise to Israel was not to two two tribes in the south. It was to the 12 tribes of Israel. His promise is to the nation of Israel. And Elijah remembers their history and he's reminding this rebellious people of the northern kingdom that they're in violation of a holy God's will. Verse 32, and with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed, about four gallons. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah wants to make it very clear to the prophets of Baal, to Ahab, to the people who are gathered there that what is going to happen next is not an accident. You don't have to be an expert in fire to know that fire and water do not go together. If you've been camping this summer or you're planning on going camping this summer and you have your campfire and you go to put it out, you put one bucket on it, you probably get most of it. You put four buckets on this campfire, that thing ain't coming back. And that's what Elijah is doing here. He is making it very clear that the fire that is going to happen is being done not by some trick that he's pulling, but by an all-powerful God who will not share his glory with another. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. This fire not only burns the offering, it burns the wood, it burns the stones, it burns the dust, it sucks up the water. This is an all-consuming fire, which is who our God is. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, They had the only response that one can have when seeing a display such as this. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people fall on their faces. They are humbled. They've seen the display of the one true God. They've seen his transcendence. They've seen his mighty power. 
his holiness, his separateness from sin, and his hatred of sin. But it doesn't end there. See, these prophets of Baal were in direct violation of God's law because they were false prophets and they were turning the people away toward other gods. They've seen it on display and so Elijah tells them in verse 40, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. In our world today, one might hear this or look at this and say, how immoral is this man of God, Elijah, and that he just authorized the execution of 850 prophets. When we ask that question, though, we're forgetting God's design for Israel, that God designed Israel to be a holy nation, to be separate from the Canaanite nations around them, that they were to worship the one true God while all those other nations that practiced idolatry were to, were to be wiped out. In fact, we read in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, you can turn there if you want or if you can just listen, but it says, if, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And then as he continues down in that same, in that same section in verse five, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. God demanded that his nation be holy because he is holy. And God's nation now is not holy. Instead of being completely devoted to God with all their heart and with all their soul, they're limping between two opinions. They're allowing idolatry to influence their society and instead of humbling themselves, they're refusing to obey. The purpose of Elijah executing the prophets is not vengeance. He's executing the law of God that the kings of Israel should have been, uh, should have been enforcing. While God does not call us today to wipe out the enemies of the gospel, his judgment will fall upon those who reject him. And our world needs to know that he is God as we, as we look back at this event and we're reminded about his holiness. But in the same passage, we don't just see the holiness of God, we also see God's grace. Notice that Ahab has not repented. Ahab just witnessed what was possibly the greatest display of God's power since the exodus or since the conquest, but yet he refuses to repent. This is not surprising. It happens often in scripture that people say, see this great display of the miraculous and the marvelous, but they refuse to repent. Ahab's not falling on his face like the people are. He's ignored the word of God. And the amazing display he's seen has not changed his allegiance. But look what the Lord does nonetheless. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink 
And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. God would have been completely just in consuming Ahab or in having Ahab executed at that time. He could have consumed Jezebel at that time. He could have commanded that all the people who refused to repent, who refused to acknowledge God's holiness, that they could have been killed. But look at the grace that he gives them, the unmerited, though not salvific in this case, favor. He ends the drought despite Ahab's lack of repentance. Even though we live in a world that is in open rebellion against our Lord, we live in a, and we live in a society that not only tolerates sin, but celebrates sin, God is still good to us. He's still good to our society. He still grants our nation and our world with his common grace. We see this in Matthew 5:45, Right after the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus tells the disciples to love their enemies and pray for those that persecute them, he tells them in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God shows his kindness to unbelievers. He showed his kindness to those of us who are believers when we were unbelievers. Unbelievers do not face all the, all the consequences immediately that they rightfully deserve. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, what we deserve is judgment. But our God is kind to you, and he demonstrates his grace to you each and every day as he makes the sun rise over you, as he makes the rain to fall on you. In fact, a lot of it this year. And he supplies our basic needs that we do not deserve. There's a purpose behind this common grace. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter two, verse four. Turn there if you wish, or you can listen. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is kind to the unbeliever. He's kind to those who are, he was kind to those of us who are in Christ before we were in Christ so that we would see his power on display, we would see his goodness on display, and that as we heard the gospel, we would repent and we would believe. But there's a warning in, the, in these verses as well. And verse five says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's righteous judgment was revealed on Ahab eventually. 
It was revealed on Jezebel eventually. It was revealed on the prophets of Baal. They saw the kindness of God. They saw his common grace that they did not deserve, yet they never repented. God shows his grace to Ahab. He allows the famine and the drought to end. So we move on into chapter 19. Elijah has run ahead of Ahab into Jezreel. Jezreel is the winter capital of Israel. He's running ahead of the king in what is a 15 to 20 mile run or so. So God is supernaturally strengthening him. Verse one says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Can you picture that conversation? I mean, Jezebel seems like such a lovely woman to talk with to begin with. Ahab comes in the door and Jezebel probably asks, how was your day? Did you take care of that prophet Elijah? How'd it go? Mm, not, not so well. Um, and about those 450 prophets of yours, well, we don't have them anymore. This has been a difficult conversation for Ahab to have, I am sure. We don't know what Elijah was hoping as he runs ahead of Ahab to Jezreel. Maybe he's hoping that there would be repentance. Maybe he's hoping that now this will be the time that God's judgment will be upon Jezebel and God will strike down Jezebel. But that's not what happened. If we stop the story here, we want to apply this, we might be defeated. We could be tempted to look at this great man of God and think, I could never do what Elijah did. Look how Elijah stood in front of the 450 prophets of Baal. He stood bold on the word of God. He proclaimed the holiness of God. How am I supposed to do that? It's tempting to make that statement, but as we keep reading, we realize Elijah couldn't do it either. He needed God's grace to sustain him. Verse two of chapter 19. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He runs from Jezreel up in the northern portion of Israel as far away from Jezebel and Ahab as he can get, down to Beersheba in the southern portion of Judah. Our own pastor in describing this has said, like, Elijah appears to be bipolar. Here's this great spiritual high, and now he's in these great spiritual depths and we think how could how could we stand with the boldness of Elijah Elijah couldn't do it either he needed God's grace Elijah at this point now wishes he could just die but here's where we see God's grace on Elijah verse 4 but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank 
and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. God's response to Elijah isn't to condemn him for his fear. It isn't to tell him to be bold and go back to Jezebel and proclaim the truth. Elijah's not bipolar here. What he's doing is he's experiencing the range of emotions that we experience in our humanity and in our spiritual life. But God sustains him by his grace. He gives him what he needs for that day. He gives him food. He gives him rest. We're reminded by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There are many times in our Christian life that we find ourselves weary, we find ourselves overwhelmed, or we think that we have failed, and we are not at all unlike Elijah in chapter 19. Maybe this morning you're a wife, you're married to a man who's not faithfully following Christ, and you've pleaded with the Lord to change his heart. It's God's grace that gives you the strength each and every day to continue living with respectful and pure conduct and praying for him. Maybe you're a parent who knows that one or more of your children do not know the Lord and you fear for your child's eternal state. God's grace is what strengthens you to continue to love them, to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You might be experiencing the consequences of your actions and it's hurt you, it's cost you relationships, it's cost you financially. God gives us the grace to repent, to do what seems like the impossible and to continue each day trusting that you are in the Lord's hand. Our God is holy. He alone should be worshiped. Our God is a God of grace who freely gives us what we need to sustain us. But one more attribute to highlight is God's faithfulness. Verse nine, then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. You know, if we wait long enough in Southern California, we can experience all three of those. But this is not a normal wind, a normal earthquake, or a normal fire. This is a precursor to let Elijah know that a message from God is coming. But in this case, that message is not a booming voice. In this case, it's gonna be a low whisper. Verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And notice what Elijah says. 
He says what he's already said twice in this passage. Verse 14. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He repeats it word for word what he just answered the Lord. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. God has brought Elijah to Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. This is not by accident. God brought Moses to Sinai to give him the promise of a promised land and to give him the law. From Elijah's perspective, things look bleak. The nation's divided. Despite the awesome display of God's holiness and power on Mount Carmel, the worship of Baal still exists. Ahab and Jezebel are still ruling. Elijah looks at that maybe I've been a failure in what God has called me to do. But God's faithfulness is on display. He uses Elijah to continue to fulfill the mission he's called him to. Elijah might have thought that after, after Mount Carmel, that Baal worship is gonna be obliterated throughout Israel, but that didn't happen. He might have thought Ahab's going to die or Jezebel are going to die, and they do, but it hasn't happened yet. When it didn't happen, he thought he was a failure. But God is faithful and God is sovereign and he works according to his perfect timing. Hazael and Jehu and Elisha, they end, up, they end up obliterating the worship of Baal in Israel. And it happens in the future, but it doesn't happen right here. God has a perfect timing for his plan. But we already mentioned, Elijah three times made that defense about he, him being the only one. I'm the only one who's standing up for you. There's no one else around me. But God reminds him of something. Look at our final verse in verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He reminds Elijah that he is not alone. He reminds Elijah that even if it's not apparent to him, God is still at work. There are those who are faithfully following the Lord. We've already seen one of them in Obadiah, who we are told feared the Lord and protected the prophets. We've seen another one in Elijah's servant. We've seen another one referred to in that Elijah will go and appoint Elisha as his successor. Elijah was fixated on making this defense of himself. He makes it three times, and he's not altogether wrong. He's been isolated. He has stood on those front lines all by himself when there's been 800 people opposing him, and his life was in jeopardy. However, God is reminding Elijah that God knows his situation, that Elijah, he does not need to defend himself. He just needs to faithfully, through the grace that God supplies, continue in the mission that God has called him to do. 
July 4th, as we think about our country, we think about the desperate predicament that we find ourselves in. We see, uh, we see rulers who reject God's word, who disobey God's word. We see open rebellion and rejection of God. And we see that being celebrated around us. And we see wicked rulers in our midst, our own country, who advocate for evil and condemn what is good. That can be depressing. We could sit and watch Fox News and we can get a lot of gray hair really fast as we think about where our country is. But God is faithful. And while God does not make promises about the United States, he does make promises about his church. His promise to build his church has not been thwarted. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. God is faithful to complete his work and he's faithful to use us in his work, even if we don't see the outward successes day in and day out. God is faithful. Instead of being anxious over what we see going on around us, let's serve our holy God in the strength he supplies through his grace, knowing that he is faithful to accomplish and complete the work. Let's seek God's wisdom Not that we need to go out and change the world, but let's go out and seek God's wisdom as we lead our families, as we evangelize the lost, whether it's in Utah or it's in our own neighborhoods. Let's practice the one another's within our church, the one another's that we see on display in God's word. Let's obey God's word. We know we're not gonna do it perfectly, but let's know what God's word says and let's obey it. And that as we do so, our Lord will continue to be faithful He will continue to fulfill his will and he will use us to accomplish the mission that he's called each one of us to do at Placerita Bible Church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that as we have seen it on display in history, that we would be reminded that your character does not change, your attributes do not change, and that you are still a perfectly holy, supreme God. You are still a God who gives grace. And God, I would pray for anyone this morning who has been limping between knowing the truth but loving their sin, that today would be the day that, that they profess faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and, uh, and seek to follow you. God, we pray that you would be glorified through us this morning. Amen.